Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon, Marlo. Hello, and welcome to another Sam Talks Technology. And I'm joined today by my special guest, Dr. Alan Watkins. Now, uh, I've had many guests on this show, and I have to say, this is the one I've been looking forward to the most. Um, Alan and I have had a, a lovely, quick lunch down at Cooper's, and uh, the conversation we're going to have again today on the radio show is going to blow your mind. I'm pretty sure. Alan is uh, a polymath. He's also a neuroscientist. He's got three degrees, and we're going to learn all about that. He's a, uh, a multi-authoring, uh, award-winning author, I would say. Um, we're going to be talking about some of his books. Um, so, uh, welcome, Alan. How are you? I'm extremely well, Sam. Uh, thanks very much for having me on, and, and good afternoon to everybody who may be listening. Thank you very much. Um, now... Let's find out a little bit more about you, first of all. Um, what do you do today? What, what does Alan Watkins find himself doing? Uh, I'm currently running a company uh, which is pointed at trying to help uh, leaders in the world uh, basically wake up and grow up. Um, so um, I trained as a physician, as you mentioned, and that was really uh, put me up close and personal with human suffering on a day-to-day basis, and it taught you a lot about human suffering and what it means to be alive but I could never really achieve this kind of scale effect I really uh, wanted uh, because as a consultant on the ward um, you know you've only really got 200 people to play with 50 on the ward 115 outpatients if you're in primary care as a general practitioner you've got 2,000 patients but 1,800 in the well so you only see 200 people again so about 24 years ago I left medicine uh, and uh, sort of launched out to try and work with the leaders of big multinational corporations and and tech startups thinking, well, actually, if we can change the quality of leadership, if we can get leaders to wake up, grow up and make better decisions, less suffering occurs, not just in 200 people, but in cross millions of people. So I run a company that now leans into that issue, saying a lot of the problems in the world can be fixed by much better leadership, particularly in corporations. Okay. So um, I've been lucky enough to spend the last 48 hours looking at your TED Talks online. Um, And one of the things that I took away with, let's start off with leadership. Um, we, why, why is it called complete coherence? Because there is a reason behind that. Um, you talk about it in one of your TED Talks, which is the Plymouth one, how you get to that state. So maybe you can tell a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, if you look at uh, uh, the problems people are facing, when people are under pressure as human beings, uh, you put any human being under pressure and often it causes a sort of biological chaos. Um, and as the biology, the biology goes into chaos... Uh, that a bit like myself right now, actually. Pretty much like anybody appearing on radio for the first time. <laughs> Uh, not you, Sam, but uh, um, invite anybody in um, and their biology goes into chaos. So uh, specifically, the fluctuations in their heart rate starts to look like an earthquake. Uh, that signal from the heart inputs the brain and you get a what we call a frontal lobe shutdown or a DIY lobotomy. So under pressure, human beings are designed to lobotomize themselves. Now, 200,000 years ago, that saved our life when you're walking across the prairie and a bear comes out from behind the rock and go, oh, human being, there's my breakfast. You don't need smart thinking. In fact, if you're trying to be clever in the face of that bear, is that a brown bear? Is that a grey bear? Does he look hungry? He eats you. So we developed this mechanism for brain shutdown. Uh, and so the, in those sort of threat conditions, our thinking becomes binary. We fight for light or play dead. There's only two choices. You either drop to the ground and play dead 
or you do fight and flight. Um, but here we are 200,000 years later, when we feel threatened today, not by bears, but generally by each other, we've still got the same mechanism. So under pressure, people's thinking becomes very simplistic. We get the lobotomy uh, and people can't think clearly. Um, and so that gets in the way today. So um, the start point is, is how do we get that chaos out of their system? Now, one of, the th one of the first things we train people is how do you turn on what's called a state of coherence? So the biology, rather than being like an earthquake, is a bit more coherent. So when you, the signal from the heart to the brain is coherent, the frontal lobes turn back on. So if you can teach people how to do that under pressure, then it's entirely possible to be really clear thinking, even under the most intense circumstance. So that's one of the things we teach business leaders, we teach athletes that, we teach school children, we teach teachers, uh, is how do you actually make sure your frontal lobes are on and you haven't gone into DIY lobotomy. Okay, so the example you gave in your Portsmouth TED Talk was you showed a young man on stage, mm -hmm. you put a, a recorder on his ear, mm -hmm. um, which was going from red to white, and you asked him to count down and then you disturbed his brain pattern. Um, but as, as you showed the spikes and the disruption, as you call it, but you then went on to talk about how you can train that through breathing and yep. where in... Because in my previous incarnation, I was a presenter for Microsoft and, you know, one of my tricks used to be, it's showtime, it was my head... head talk and then mm -hmm. I'd walk on and that would just heighten me yeah. um, and then there's all the, the famous ones you talked about you know take some deep breaths and be yeah. you know how can we calm ourselves down get to that state of frontal lobe re-engaging what mm -hmm. are there techniques or is it just a case the, the, of you are or you're not no uh, you can learn it uh, right. which is the good news and it's not about calming down Right. And again, people are obsessed with being calm. And I've actually lectured to uh, my medical colleagues uh, at the Institute of Psychiatry, relaxation can kill you. Right. I gave this talk, <laughs> right, which sort of put the cat amongst the pigeons because people are obsessed with relaxation. And there's a sort of almost de facto, by definition, relaxation is a good thing. And it may not be because you can be relaxed and indifferent. And that's not good. You know, uh, particularly in your own background, the military background, if you teach soldiers to be too relaxed in the face of fire, that's not a good thing. No, not if at all. If you teach an airline pilot to be completely indifferent to the fact that f uh, engine one's on fire, that is not a good thing. So we shouldn't be so obsessed with relaxation as a phenomena. Uh, what you need is coherence, not relaxation. That's a different thing entirely. And so it, it matters not so much you know, what your average heart rate is. So when you're relaxed, your average heart rate might be 50 beats per minute. When you're aroused or amped up, your average heart rate might be 120 beats per minute. But it doesn't really matter so much whether it's 50 or 120. What really matters is, is it chaotic or is it coherent? So if the listeners can visualise a sort of vertical line, and at the top of the vertical line is a high heart rate, activation of your system, 120 beats per minute, and the bottom of the line is a low heart rate, relaxation, calm, 50 beats per minute, what really matters is the horizontal axis, not the vertical axis, and to the right, negative emotion, and to the left, positive emotion. So we've seen over the last sort of 25 years that actually if you live your life on the left-hand side of that grid, it doesn't matter whether you're top left or bottom left, high performance, whether it's in business or sport, in exams or in your life generally, comes from living your life in a more positive emotional state, a more coherent state, not a relaxed state. 
Okay. And so that's where the company name comes from, clearly. Correct. Um, now, you, you, you talked about a couple other things in that talk, and then I want to come back to some of the things you did recently helping at the last two Olympics. Mm-hmm. I just want to hear some case studies and maybe some other leadership. Um, you talked about being able to breathe and where you should breathe from. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit yeah, about Yeah, so um, to get the biology under control in the heat of the moment, it starts with stabilising your breathing. Now, there are 12 different aspects to your breath you can learn to control. And because most people who teach breath techniques and breath techniques are taught to sports people, they're taught to singers, uh, they're taught to fighter pilots... But a lot of people who are doing that teaching aren't necessarily trained in f- human physiology. So some of the wrong techniques sort of sort of leak out, which is why when you talk to most general public people, they would go, oh, yes, I've heard that advice of take a few deep breaths. Deep breathing doesn't help brain function much. Uh, and by the way, when people say take a few deep breaths, what they really mean is take a few large volume breaths. So they mean large, not deep. Because a deep breath means you take a certain amount of air in and it goes to the base of your lungs, the depth of your lungs. That's a deep breath. But they don't really mean that. They mean a large breath. Right. So when they say deep breathing, they mean large breathing. And even large breathing isn't that helpful. So what we found of these 12 different things you can control, the most important factor, first, the top priority, is not deep or large, it's rhythm. It's a rhythmic breath. So when I see, it, often see it on the television, somebody in some play or some article or some documentary telling somebody else, take a few deep breaths before that meeting, I end up shouting at the television. <laughs> it's rhythmic breathing, not deep breathing. Right. Um, and a rhythmic breath means a fixed ratio of in to out. Now, what that ratio is, whether it's four seconds in, six seconds out, or five seconds in, five seconds out, doesn't matter as much as the fact that it's fixed. So the first priority in getting your breathing under control and therefore your biology under control in the face of a threat is to breathe rhythmically. Now, once you've got the rhythm under control, the second priority is to make sure that rhythm is smooth. So it's entirely possible to breathe rhythmically but erratic in terms of its staccato nature. So I'll see if I can make the sound for people listening. Uh, So I can breathe rhythmically but staccato. So I could go... So that's rhythmic, but it's staccato. Right. And what you really want is smooth. So you want a... So you want a smooth in and out. So if you breathe rhythmically and evenly, silky smooth, rhythmic and even, and imagine you're breathing through the heart, not the abdomen, then your biology becomes coherent and your frontal lobes Uh, turn back on. So that's the first thing we teach people to stabilise their biology under pressure. Breathe rhythmically, evenly and through the heart every day. Which, by the way, spells breathe. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a wonderful acronym to remember. I, that's now going to stay with me, so thank you for that. Um, you uh, were very lucky, uh, I guess, or maybe they, they were very lucky, I don't know who, who the luck resided with, to... Um, be involved with the Olympic team for 2012 and 2016 in Rio. Yeah. What were you doing? What, what was your involvement? Well, it was my good fortune because um, I was asked by the GB rowing squad through somebody I knew uh, three months before London 2012 to come and help. Um, and I used to row myself when I was at here in Marlow. Uh, in, well. in Marlow, indeed, yes, I used to boat from the Marlow uh, boathouse because um, I went to the RGS uh, High Wycombe uh, as a student. And um, so three months before the London 
2012 Olympics, uh, I got to go down and, and meet all the crews and the athletes in Caversham, which is uh, where the elite end uh, is based. Um, and so I thought this is the best gig in the world. You know, it's rowing, my sport. It's our home Olympics. It doesn't get better than this. So I had a very inter- I got all the athletes and the crews together and the coaches together and said, look, I love rowing, my sport, home Olympics. If I'm not with a client in the next three months, you can have me for free. And there were 15 coaches and 15 crews. And I explained a little bit about uh, how I could help uh, and said, OK, who wants some of this free help? Put your hands up. And fortunately, seven crews put their hand up, said, yeah, that sounds interesting. We'll have some of that. And eight crews went, do you know what, Alan? No, thanks. I think we've got it covered. Now, what was interesting is of the seven crews I worked with, six of them meddled. Of the eight crews that I didn't work with, only three of them meddled. So <laughs> their misfortune then. Yeah. Well, I... I I'm not claiming that was down to me. I am. Uh, um, I'm more claiming... I mean, hopefully I helped a bit, but I was more... Actually, the most brilliant people are always open for business. Uh, And I've seen time and again, not just in sport, but in business, that that sort of insularity, you know, we don't need help, we've got it covered, is a predictor of failure. So people who aren't open, you know, a lot of people say, particularly in sport, yes, they'll leave no stone unturned. Actually, my experience working across many, many sports over the last 25 years is actually there's all sorts of stones that are not turned over. Uh, there's still massive opportunity to help you know, business people and sports people to get better and better and better. Um, so eight crews were too insular. Um, and so the better crews were open and I went and worked with them. And the first thing I taught them is what I've just taught your listeners, which is stabilise your breathing. Because you can imagine if you're in the Olympic final, your breathing's, you know, you're... It's erratic, it's all over. Yeah, it's all over the place, right? So, you know, you're breathing rapid, erratic, shallow, anxious, you know. um, And so what you'll see if you watch the rerun of the crews that I worked with, their breathing is very stable uh, before they start the race. And then once we got that stabilised, that stabilised their biology, we went up to where the real game is, which is teaching them to get complete control of their emotional state. So we did a lot of work uh, on emotional regulation with these crews. Okay. And is is what you taught them transposable to any sport? So could you go to the England rugby team pre-World Cup and help them, as yes. an example? Uh, and in fact, we have done that in lots of other sports. Um, so we've had, again, the great good fortune uh, to work with professional footballers and uh, professional managers. You know, many years ago, I did some work with Arsene Wenger uh, in the year that they won the double. Uh, I did a bit of work with Gareth Southgate prior to the World Cup, where they got to the semi-final. Um, you know, we've worked with um, some uh, some rugby players, we work with some golfers, we work with disability shooting, we've worked with some swimmers. So we work with quite a variety. So these skills are transferable to all sports because it's really about how do you become brilliant every single day. And the thing that's consistent across business and sport is what predicts performance is your ability to control yourself in business or sport. Um, And so we teach some really uh, sort of focused skills of how do you get control of yourself in the heat of the battle, uh, whether it's in the boardroom or uh, at the start line of the Olympic final. How do you get control of you so you can get your best game out every single time? So most of these brilliant people, whether it's an athlete or a businessman or a CEO, uh, most of them can produce brilliance sometimes, but what they can't do is produce brilliance every single day. So we just show them how to do that. So 
um, moving away from sport. Before I do, I did. There was one thing you did say I loved was the way you row is the same as the way you breathe. You were talking about putting your oars in and, and having a consistent yeah. flow. Yeah. So if you look, I mean, rowing is probably the most widely used metaphor for business for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and interestingly, if you're teaching a novice crew how to row properly, the first thing you teach them is rhythm. You don't teach them deep rowing or large volume rowing. You teach them rhythmic. So the cocks will shout in, out, in, out, in, out. They're basically instilling rhythm. Right. Now, once they've mastered the rhythm, the second thing is once the blades go in the water together, then you've got to pull smoothly through the water. You don't pull hard for a bit and then let it drift and then pull hard for a bit and let it drift. You apply equal smooth pressure throughout the entire stroke. So it's exactly the same as learning to control your breathing. So you breathe rhythmically and evenly and teaching a novice rowing crew, you put the blades in together rhythmically and you pull evenly through the water. So it's the same thing. And if you do that, you generate more biological power. So that has a direct effect on whether you win or lose the rowing race. Um, and in fact, this weekend on Saturday, I'm going up to see the Chinese Rowing Association. So they've asked me to help. They're based up in Nottingham at the moment. Um, and so, uh, uh, rather ironically, the GB Rowing setup has lost its two of its best people uh, in terms of Steve Redgrave, now works with the Chinese Rowing Association. Oh, right, OK. And Paul Thompson, who's probably in the top two rowing coaches in Britain has also gone to the Chinese Rowing Association. Why? Um, uh, because insularity is a predictor of failure. So if there's a system uh, that thinks they've got this covered, I mean, GB Rowing has been unbelievably successful. You know, they've won the Olympic regatta probably for the last four Olympics. And so many systems, like many businesses, start to believe they've got it covered. And so they become a bit insular and then they'll you know, allow some of their best people to leave because they think they can do it without them. Yeah. And so we've actually lost Steve Redgrave and Paul Thompson to the Chinese Rowing Association. And Paul rang me up and said, look, you know, we're making real progress with the Chinese. Do you want to come and help? So literally this Saturday, I'm going up to Nottingham to talk to the Chinese Rowing Association. So I'm hoping that uh, people will see the Chinese rowers start to make an impact, certainly uh, in Tokyo, uh, but definitely by Paris. Right. You'll see them start to meddle. Um, so, but, you know, you can do this in business and in sport to teach these things because they're transferable skills. Yeah, we were talking off air just before we came on about martial arts. Mm. I, I teach martial arts and I haven't had the structural element that you've just given me of, but it's exactly the same metric, you know, fight or flight. The minute we put people into a sparring situation or into a real street fight, uh, your adrenaline dump is high, your breathing goes erratic, you tighten up, the muscles go, so the ability to react instinctively to a punch or a kick or whatever goes because mm -hmm. you can't. So you, a lot of what I have talked to students before about is controlling your breathing i didn't have the structure yeah. but but that's what we've always tried to teach them that you have to learn and we've tried to do it through the basis of well if you do it frequently and often it doesn't become such a shock to your system so if you see a bear every day mm. maybe the bear doesn't become so scary i don't know so that's not correct i'm afraid to say because there you go just just, <laughs> be, just because you do something frequently and often yeah. doesn't mean it's optimal 
No, so it's a bit like a golf swing. You know, just because you practice with a bucket of balls four hours a day doesn't mean you're hitting it straight. Yeah. I, I, grant, I grant you that. Yeah. It, it, it's my my non-neuroscientific right. way. The only way I could teach students was to try and get them to relax, right? right. Um, not to, in the same way you just described perfectly earlier, mm. to be coherent is now mm. what I'm going to be saying. I'm right. not going to be saying relax in a right. class. Um, the fundamental point... So, so is, that's, that, it's the precision, Sam. It is, is In any walk of life, whether you're learning to meditate or be mind, you know, mindfulness training is a big thing at the moment, yeah. or whether you're learning the violin or whether you're learning to hit the, the golf ball straight or to be a great chief executive, what matters is the quality of the coaching. Um, there's lots of people out there setting themselves up as coaches, either in business or in sport, but it's not the fact that they're coaching, it's the quality and the precision of the guidance that really matters. So that's why we say, look, there are 12 dimensions to the breathing. Which one of the 12 is the most important? And you have to know that. You have to know your onions. You have to have be able to give that quality, precise guidance to say just the fact that you keep replicating the thing over and over and over doesn't mean it's making you better. So when we were talking about what's called in the military circles, inurement training, i.e., you know, you put soldiers crawling under razor wire, you put machine gun across the top of them and they... In there. essentially habituate to the stress that's not necessarily a good thing because if you're an anaesthetist you know putting people to sleep in an operation you don't want to habituate to the stress you become indifferent and somewhat inattentive same with an airline pilot if you habituate to the alarms you become inattentive to the alarms you make a mistake right what you need to be is to maintain perceptual awareness right Uh, which doesn't mean relaxing because if you relax, you can go relaxed one of two ways. You can be relaxed negative, which is indifference, which is not what you want. You can go relaxed positive, so you can be peaceful and content. So relaxation may help you, but it may be profoundly counterproductive. So again, it's whether you're the, if you remember the grid, you know, up and down is arousal, relaxation. To the left, you're positive. To the right, you're negative. So if you're bottom left, relaxed positive, that's good. But if you're bottom right, relaxed negative indifference apathy boredom that's really bad yeah and we 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 teach them in martial arts and the only thing i can relate to is if the opponent's in front of you 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 gain that moment to take it in the environment but what you have to be doing is looking where the escape door is you need to be looking you know is you got two mates who've just gone to the toilet they're going to come back so you're pounding this guy in front of you and behind you two guys come and whack you over the head right so so, so how ha- do you maintain that right yeah. so it's not by lowering your heart rate and becoming relaxed you know because actually uh, you probably don't want a heart rate of 50 or 60 no. in the middle of a fight uh, in fact you probably it would be Couldn't very difficult happen. to do that, yeah, right? So you say. actually want your heart rate to be 100 plus because yeah. you need a certain amount of adrenaline to build that strength, right? But it's got to be 100 positive. So you've got to be top left, right. not top right. Top right would be anger. Your biology is in chaos. Your perceptual awareness is inhibited. So if you're too angry, you, you don't perceive the two mates Absolutely. coming back from the toilet. Yeah. You've got, but if you're top left, the heart rate's still 120, but you're perceptive. That's coherent not calm and the last part is in control of your emotions as well because control of your emotions shouting back at the person Correct. won't help it just heightens his you know I, we, we talk to students about you know the best form of self-defense is just to be able to walk away yeah say i'm sorry and walk away mm. you know don't think 
just you have to fight. You Correct. don't. You don't. But being able to make that choice in the heat of the, the battle, will I walk away or will he hit me on the back of the head as I walk away? Or is the best move here, punch him straight on the nose and take a sort of preemptive strike? Well, we do that as well. But. Exactly. So, <laughs> so being able to make that choice in the heat of the moment is critical. Your heart rate's 120. You've got to make that choice. Your ability to make that choice doesn't depend on the heart rate. What it really depends on is your biology chaotic or coherent. So if you're high heart rate coherent, top left, you'll make the right choice. If you're high heart rate chaotic, you'll walk away and then get clobbered on the back of the head. So you'll make the wrong choice if you're chaotic. Now, are people... uh do you find from the people you've met over the time that there are people who are naturally coherent and, and, and on that side, on the top left? Or is it a case of you find most people are naturally uh, bottom right, let's say, or, or to the right, and, yeah. and you just bring them back to that left? Where are most people in the world? M- most people in the world are rightward skewed. Right. Uh, primarily because we're living lives we were never never designed. We, we're hunter-gatherers. Human yep. beings are hunter-gatherers. We're designed to be out in nature. So right now, Sam and I are sitting in a very small, <laughs> uh, slightly warm, warm booth. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not designed to live in these boxes, but we do. Um, and actually, if we have to live in our, in our boxed office, we want the, the, the room with a view. We want to see some greenery because we actually feel better left-hand side, positive emotion, if we can at least see the grass or a tree. If we've got that corner office, but it looks over two other brick walls, we feel worse. Right. So we're designed, really, as hunter-gatherers, we're designed to be out there in nature, right? But we're now living on the right-hand side of that grid, what we call the universe of emotions. We're living in states of semi-chaos most of the time, but simply because we're living lives we were never designed to live. We're living in boxes, you know, encased, um, and actually, um, we drift to the right inadvertently. And, and what's worse is people, particularly in the UK, you notice this more than America, for example, uh, we're very good at narrating the negative. You know, so I often say to people, you know, the most dangerous question you get uh, in any 24-hour period is when you get home after a full day's work and your, your partner says to you, how was your day? That's a dangerous question, right? Because, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe the day I had. La, 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 la. And you, you go into a whole negative rehearsal. And, and the risk of that is the more you rehearse something, the better you get at it. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit like playing the piano or violin. If you rehearse playing the piano, you get good at it. If you rehearse a negative emotion, you get good at it. Okay, so yeah. in response to that question, how was your day, if you start rehearsing you know, the frustration and the anger and the disappointment you've had that day, Hey, presto, you start to experience frustration and anger and disappointment every day. But the good news is the opposite is true. So if you start to rehearse a positive emotion, you start getting good at that. So if you rehearse being appreciative, being content, being passionate, you get good at those things. So, you know, we are what we practice. And and so actually in, in Complete Coherence in the business, we don't even call ourselves coaches. We call ourselves practitioners. Okay. Because we ourselves are practicing every single day. We practice what we preach uh, and we rehearse positive emotions until we get really, really good at it and you infect others with that. You know, optimism, belief, and you can lift performance with no other changes than just by lifting people's belief uh, and their hope and their possibility. So let's let's move on to people in business. Right. Um, Going in to teach the CEO how to be less emotive and more to the left and coherent, I get. 
but what else do you do? I mean, how, you know, what? why do leaders, and, you know, I... You've mentioned a few already of the companies you work with, and I, I, I'm very cognizant right now not to mention some that you said I can't mention, so I'm not going to say any at all, right. and I'll leave you to mention the case studies instead. But wh- what what are they calling you in for? Because it can't be just teach me how to breathe better and how yeah, to be not. much uh, more uh, controlled. And, and also, it's not be less emotive either. Right. So, again, precision, right? So yeah. um, we're not trying to flatten emotion. In, in fact, when people have got control of their emotion, they're often more emotionally expressive, Okay. You know, so they don't become robots uh, and uh, emotionless. And there's this sort of odd notion, uh, you know, perpetuated a bit more by men than women, is we've got to remove emotion from business. Emotion has no place in business. Well, that's not even possible, right? From a neuroscientific perspective, um, you can't surgically remove emotion. Emotion is what makes us human beings, particularly our awareness of our own emotion. So dogs have emotions, they just don't have awareness of their emotions. So one of the things that makes humans humans is your awareness of your emotion. So one of the things we teach business people is, first of all, to become much more aware of the emotion. So I feel something, right? Um, And then, okay, so... Of all the emotions you could feel, which one are you actually feeling? So you move from awareness to something called literacy, so emotional literacy. Can you tell the difference, for example, between anger and anxiety? Right? And some people simply can't. So if you get a room full of people and say, okay, uh, I want you over the next five minutes to write down all the emotions you've noticed in this last week, it's quite an interesting thing to do with people. You know, and then what happens is people start writing a list, you know, I felt frustrated, angry, annoyed, disappointed, uh, upset. Oh, hang on, they're all negative. I was going to say. Yeah, that's what they do. Like, first of all, they go, oh my goodness, I've got five negatives. Uh, I felt okay last Tuesday. And they desperately come up (laughs) with a positive, right? Um, And so naturally people are more rightward skewed. So often it's like a 60-40 split, if not worse, negative to positive. But most people, if you have a room full of 100 people, the average in the room is about, most people can recognise in their own system, about a dozen emotions on a regular basis. And then we throw out the question, like, well, how many do you think there are? Um, You know, people guess a couple of hundred. There are 34,000. Wow. Distinguishable emotions. So most people's literacy, most people's ability to identify these different emotional states within themselves is incredibly impoverished. So once you've become... Why? Why is that? Because we just don't teach it in school. Okay. You know, we teach math and reading and all this. We don't teach people to tune in to themselves, right? We don't teach that in school. We teach them to pay attention uh, uh, in things outside of themselves, not pay attention to what's going on inside of themselves. So even in, uh, and we've done some work when my wife and I set up the company, in the first three years, we used all the profits to run a, a sort of schools project in Southampton. So 12 inner city sink schools in Southampton. We went in and we taught these kids and it transformed what happened in the, in the schools. And, and some of these schools were what were called EBD schools, emotional behavioral difficulty schools. Um, and so, you know, teaching people, that's really about what's going on inside of me not what's going on outside of me. Um, and so if I share a little story, the first, we went in to see the head teacher before this project started. Uh, and we sat down there with the head teacher and the staff in the staff room. And I tarted, started to talk to them about some of the things we've talked about already today, which is when a child feels threatened, his biology goes into chaos and his frontal lobe shuts down. And, and as we were talking, there was a knock at the door. 
Um, and one of the teachers came in from one of the classrooms uh, and started to tell this story about this child, let's call him Dylan. So Dylan was causing a problem and causing a ruckus in this classroom. And, and uh, this teacher said, Head, you've got to come out and sort Dylan out. And he went, like, I'm in a meeting. Uh, and, the, and the teacher went, no, 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 you've got to sort Dylan out. I can't sort him out. We need you to sort him out. And the head went, no, 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 I'm in a meeting. And there was a bit of a standoff for a few seconds. And so the teacher wasn't leaving. And so the head basically apologised, left the room uh, and went to sort Dylan out. Now, being very smart, like many teachers are very adaptive uh, and pragmatic, what the head did is he got hold of Dylan and this little eight-year-old and he frog-marched him back into the room where I was sitting with the rest of the leadership team. And he went, OK, Alan, you're smart, you fix Dylan. And he kind of just <laughs> launched this kid at me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that. So Dylan came and I sat him down in the chair uh, and I said, look, um, the trouble is that when kids feel threatened, uh, the biology goes into chaos, frontal lobe shuts down, it's no point in trying to explain anything to them. They've got no frontal lobe. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't understand. But one of the things you can do under those intense situations is literally just physically show them. Uh, and actually, I had this biofeedback kit that you saw on the TED Talk, and I just put this clip on Dylan's ear, and I showed him on my computer screen live his biology, and sure enough, it was chaos. Uh, and so I said to Dylan, this little eight-year-old kid, um, actually, Dylan, um, while we're talking here, if you, if you just follow this, what's called the breath pacer, when that goes, that, that, that breath pacer moves up, you breathe in. When it moves down, you breathe out. So just follow the breath pacer up and down, up and down. And just ignore us. Just carry on and see if you can follow that. And we'll talk to you a bit later because we're having a meeting here. So I just left him to it. And I started to carry on explaining to the other teachers in the room uh, how we could help them. Uh, but out of the corner of my eye, I was watching Dylan, this little eight-year-old kid, who, by the way, was really not liked by his classmates. So this is a child whose life was going really badly. His dad was in prison. He was the youngest of five. Wow, and only eight. Yeah, at eight. He's uh, youngest of five. His older siblings picked on him. His classmates picked on him. His teacher saw him as a troublemaker. So this is a, a poor kid whose life wasn't going well in this sink estate. Um, anyway, at the corner of my eye, sure enough, within about 20 seconds, his biology went from chaos to this beautiful coherent sine wave. And as I saw that happening, his biology change, I turned to him, stopped the meeting, went, oh my goodness, Dylan. I said, this is fantastic. I said, you've done this before. He said, I haven't, I haven't. <laughs> and I said, no, no, this is a genius. Staff, I've never seen a child get control of his biology that quick. Did you realise Dylan was a genius? You've got a genius in your midst. And so the other teachers started to clue in to what I was doing. I was heaping this kid with praise. So they started to tee off that. So another a teacher went, my God, maybe should we should announce this in assembly, how brilliant Dylan is. And somebody else said, yeah, maybe we could give him a certificate. Another one said, with a gold star. And so Dylan suddenly started to expand and sort of filled the room he sort of inflated so from an eight-year-old who came into that room with a clenched drawer and clenched fist having just you know had a fight in the classroom suddenly the whole thing evaporated and he felt tense probably never tall. been praised before never been praised but more important than that he didn't realize in a child whose life was going really badly he could control nothing in his life and in that five minutes he learned there is one thing he can control in his life and it turned out it was his him. Now he learnt that in five minutes. So he went back to the classroom, which interesting was across the sort of glass quadrangle that we were sat in. Uh, and for the next half an hour, he kept looking over to where we were sat and kept giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> um, like he felt great. Um, and so that story went like wildfire across uh, the schools in Southampton. And literally that afternoon, we had 12 schools signed up. Wow. Because 
it was a really important lesson. This child suddenly realised the answer to the problem was him. It was not his teacher, not his parents, not his siblings, not his classmates. He learnt he could change his life by changing himself. So that encapsulates what we're teaching to athletes, business people. That's where the journey starts. There, there are many other things we teach them, but that often is the start point. People taking back control of their own biology and their own emotion. That's really key for everybody. Okay. So one of the books you, you've written is called 4D. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I understand, and, and I want you to elaborate, is there are three dimensions, mm-hmm. and I'd like you to understand and explain to everyone what the fourth dimension is. Clearly, yes. it's 4D. Yeah. Um, it starts off with I, we, and it, yeah. or doing relationships, etc. Yeah. Can you tell people what 4D is about and, and, and how that works in the business environment? Yeah, so this really comes from uh, my own mentor, Ken Wilber, who's probably the cleverest guy on the planet. In fact, they've just made a a film of his life. Um, And so uh, Ken has probably spawned about 50 areas of academic research himself. So he's really a genius. I mean, some people actually think he's an alien. Uh, He's that (laughs) clever. Um, So Ken, uh, uh, in his 20s, started to become very interested in, in everything that everybody wrote about psychology, about spirituality, about philosophy. And he just read everything. Uh, And he came up with a model that integrated everybody else's model. So this is called integral theory, uh, for those of that want to kind of uh, search and go into what's called the Wilburness. Ken Wilbur. (laughs) Wilburness, right? Um, So there's some really interesting stuff about Ken on on the internet. Uh, So Ken's really a a genius. um, And one of the things that I learned from Ken is every moment of our life is multidimensional. So even as people may be listening to this podcast, while they're listening, they're having thoughts and feelings about what we're talking about. Uh, That's your eye. That's your interior. The stuff that you can't see. People can't see what you're thinking. They can't see what you're feeling. But it's still there. That's your being. That's your human beingness, the eye. Now, at the same time as that's happening... You and I, Sam, are relating to each other across this desk, right? So hopefully we're getting on pretty well. I'd like Uh, to think so. (laughs) uh, So there's a relationship. That's the relating. That's the we space. Again, uh, and the quality of that relationship is not visible, right? It's kind of like the cultural norm in a business, if you like. Um, You can't see it, but you can certainly feel it. Um, So that's the we space. Uh, At the same time as I'm having thoughts and feelings, I'm relating to other people in my life. That's the we space. Uh, And we're doing stuff. We're doing stuff. And what are we doing right now? We're doing a podcast. Okay, so while we're doing the podcast, you and I are having thoughts and feelings. So while there's an it, a podcast, being done, uh, you and I are having thoughts. There's an I over this side of the desk and there's an I over your side of the desk. And these two eyes are relating to each other. So these are the three dimensions, I, we, and it. And they happen in every single moment. So even the listeners, as they're listening to this, are having thoughts. That's their I. And if they're sat in a room on their own, uh, the we space may be impoverished, but if somebody else is in the room, just literal physical glances to other people, they're relating through body language to other people. That's their we. Uh, And maybe they're going to do something, or maybe they're writing notes. That's doing. So every moment of our life, (coughs) there is is an I, a we, and an it. (coughs) So here's the problem, right? There's a fourth dimension. That's why it's 4D leadership. Uh, And the fourth dimension is the sophistication of our I, the sophistication of our we, or the sophistication of our it. Now, uh, over the millennia, human beings have got very, very sophisticated in the world of it. 
you know, because, and certainly in business, most business people are what we call it addicted. So they're addicted to the stuff out there, the rational objective world of task and target and goal and metric and outcome and numbers and money. That's out there. And they're on the hamster wheel of doing things and doing things and doing things. In fact, many of them have become human doings. Right. They're not human beings anymore. They become human doings, just following a set of rules and targets and goals and outcomes to try and drive profit. And some of them have got disconnected from their own humanity, their beingness, if you will. They've lost sight of that. Um, and, you know, their relationships are often a little bit tense. So they haven't invested properly in the we space. So we'll turn up and actually the first start point is to point out that there are these three dimensions. So we've got to break the it addiction. So in the world, you know, humanity itself has generated some incredibly complicated and sophisticated and advanced technology. You know, the internet, nuclear weapons. But these nuclear weapons are often in the hands of babies, right? I, human beings that don't have the maturity at the same altitude as the technology, we've got very advanced technology in the hands of babies. And therein lies the danger. So the human beings are not vertically developed is the technical term. They're not at a level of maturity commensurate with the technology in their hands. So you've got a mismatch. And so partly what we're trying to do is to, first of all, you know, wake leaders up, whether it's leaders in sports or schools or business or politics, to this mismatch. There's very advanced tech, uh, but not very advanced human beings and not very sophisticated relationship. And so the easiest way to you know, point out that there isn't very sophisticated relationship, that in most Western countries, the person you choose to spend your life with, 50%, it breaks. So we're not that great at relating to each other as human beings. You know, the very person you put all your priority on, I'm going to marry this person and choose them as my life partner, 50% of that goes wrong. And if interestingly, if you look at the data on second marriages and third marriages, the divorce rate in second marriages is 60% and third marriages is 80%. So right. we get worse. Yeah. Right? So we're not great at relationships. I'd like to say I'm not even on my first. So Good, I'm yes. Okay. I'm, I'm happily, last week, my 28th wedding anniversary. But, but we get worse as human beings. Uh, we're not great at relating. But we've got all this advanced tech. Um, and so the task moving forward for humanity is to wake up and grow up and grow up our eye, the sophistication, if you will, of our being, uh, the maturity of us as human beings and the quality and sophistication of our relationships. So the big task is to uh, develop I and we so it's commensurate with it. So when we're in business, interestingly, how you improve a business is not by getting more and more obsessed with the task. You know, so I often say to a leader, imagine I can show you uh, how to speed up your thinking, how to treble the speed of your thinking. Imagine I can show you through neuroscience techniques how to massively expand your insightfulness and your perceptual awareness. Imagine we, you know, increase the altitude of your eye. We make you much more sophisticated you don't think that's going to change your ability to outcompete the opposition? Of course it will. That's an eye acceleration giving you way more return on investment in the it space. And imagine in your leadership team, we treble the strength of the bonds between you and your COO or your CFO or the other people around the leadership table. Imagine the quality of the relationships doubles or trebles. You don't think that's going to change the business outcome? Of course it will. So actually, 
the great news here is this is almost virgin snow for most businesses. They haven't been investing properly in the I and the we, but when they do, my goodness, you see an, a massive improvement. So I, I will, uh, because this is public knowledge now, one of the companies we've had the great pleasure of working with over the last 18 months is I've been working with a, a brilliant leader called Matt Simister, who is the uh, CEO for Tesco in Europe. They're, they're across four countries in Europe. Uh, and over the last 18 months of, uh, of working with Matt, um, We've sort of got a grip of their leadership team uh, and they've been fantastic uh, examples of implementing some of the things we've taught them. Um, and we saw that um, one of the things they did at the back end of last year is they decided to do a, an engagement survey, a very common thing in business, like, you know, how well are people getting on here? They did an engagement survey, not run by us, but run by a, another company called Corn Ferry, across 70,000 staff. You know, and they asked them a load of questions. You, do you like it here? Have you got a mate at work? You know, how's it going? All that kind of stuff. And we saw uh, an uplift. Now, I asked Matt before we got the results, I said, what level of uplift are you looking for in the engagement of your staff? And, and he was like, well, if we could get a 1% improvement, that would be great because that's more than the company average over the last 12 months. We saw a 16-point improvement. It was so dramatic that Corn Ferry, who'd done the survey, thought they got it wrong. Right. They went back and looked at it four times. No, it was 16-point increase. Uh, and it was transformative. And of course, Matt, being a very pragmatic, focused business guy, went, that's really nice that we got that. And that's a great thing to have achieved. But will it translate to the numbers? Will we actually make more sales? Which is ultimately what a lot of business people think about. So we were waiting for the Christmas figures to come in. Uh, and what we saw is a three times faster acceleration of profit in that uh, Tesco Europe than anywhere else in the company. Was this after Sir Terry Levy? So because Tesco it's, took a yeah, massive dip down. It took a massive it? dip. So when Terry <clears throat> anointed Phil Clark, who was his successor, uh, it went backwards significantly, and that's another whole story. And then Dave Lewis, ex Unilever, comes in takeover, has stabilised the ship, and it's starting to power back up again. So over the last uh, eighteen months of working with Matt and his team, they've added one hundred ten million pounds to their bottom line, which is in business terms business people talk about a return on investment or an ROI is 1,500 times ROI. So the amount it cost them to do that was a minuscule compared to the amount of additional profit they made. So once you really start to make these teams work properly and really hum, they can achieve great things. And ironically, it's not by focusing on the it, it's focusing on the I and the we. And you, you increase the sophistication of the I, you increase the sophistication of the we, you absolutely smash it. So... And I, I think that's brilliant. I wonder whether the Corn Ferry survey would work after they've just announced a massive layoff of staff. Um, Simon Sinek talks about not head count, but heart count, yep. about how people within companies need to be seen as the brother, the sister, the uncle, the aunt of somebody. And so, so that increase that you saw was brilliant. But then the reality of bottom line and profitability hits Tesco and then they go and say we're going to let all these people go how much do you then take the whole step back of the we suddenly becomes but this is why you, so it's a very good question this is why leadership matters right so uh, all companies are facing quite a challenge in that um, you know how do we keep our cost base down so particularly as AI and roboticization comes into the workforce and so on how do we stay lean and mean um, and so companies will go through the cycle where they recruit and then they lay off 
Uh, so all companies go through that kind of cycle. But when you're going through the sort of downturn, you're having to lay people off. How do you keep the survivors motivated? That's where leadership's required, is you have to better face into the difficulty of the market conditions. Like Europe, economically, has been very flat for two or three years. So in that space, how do you keep the staff motivated, particularly if you shrunk the staff base. That's where leadership matters. So it's the leader's ability to face the reality of today, but in Martin Luther King terms, still have a dream. Right. So I can truly face, and this is kind of essentially what he said, I can truly face the difficulties of today, but I still have a dream. So it's the ability to authentically narrate what's happening is, guys, look, it is tough out there, uh, but actually there's still possibilities. Um, And so if I can, you know, the the corporate responsibility is to help the staff find a route towards optimism, towards positivity. So as Bear Grylls will, will tell you, in a survival state, the thing that matters to survival is positivity, positivity, positivity. But it's not fake positivity. You know, so that often you, you often hear in, uh, you know, in America, this is very common, you know, great job, but it's not that authentic. You know, you don't help somebody by saying great job when it wasn't a great job. So you need authentic positivity rooted in the challenge of today. So how can we get clear thinking? How can we narrate? That requires the leader themselves to be perceptive. And that perceptiveness requires the leader's biology and emotional state to be stable. So if you get stable biology uh, and you get your emotions under control, you become more perceptive. If you become more perceptive, you can narrate what's happening, the good and the bad to the workforce so the workforce start to feel a bit more comfortable a bit more motivated so they can do a good job even in difficult economic times okay so i I, going through my head as you're talking i want to move the conversation forward now because uh being as you are a polymath one of the areas we look outside of and 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 you and i've spoken about this before which is capitalism 2.0 and i'll relate it back to what we just talked about which is um, 1970 friedman changed the economic model to shareholder value and prior to that actually it was all about retaining value within the company and profit and and so we've seen salaries haven't increased we've seen the bottom line cut this this unemotional requirement to to the bottom line to get shareholder value up yeah how in the world of capitalism that we have today the model's broken right yeah it's totally broken because if if we extrapolate this forward then ai will remove the other working elements of the business out and we'll end up with actually no one having any money to buy the products that companies make so we're killing the wheel anyway the race to the bottom it's called Yeah. yeah so so what in your opinion should I guess economics capitalism 2.0 look like for me I'm I'm desperately searching for the next economic there was Friedman there was Milton what is the next thing right Um, so really really interesting capitalism and by the way it's not just me saying cap there's lots of people narrating this story about capitalism is clearly a busted flush. It's past its sell-by date. So even if you look at uh, the Financial Times, there's been lots of stories in the last 12 months talking about the fact that capitalism is a busted flush. So the Financial Times is staying this. So I'll give you a couple of other examples. Uh, the CEO of BlackRock, which is the biggest property owner in the world, uh, and they're sort of like a, a bit like um, a hedge fund, if you will, or a, a portfolio private equity uh, crowd, is they own Hilton Hotels, for example, uh, and they own tech startups like CloudReach. Um, so they're big players. The CEO, and they've got something like six 
trillion dollars under management invested in Hilton and other places, right? Um, the CEO of BlackRock has, for the second year running, put an email out or a letter out, an uh, open letter to, to everybody, all business people, basically saying, if you don't have a sense of social purpose or social contribution, you ain't getting our six million. So when some hard-bitten capitalist like the CEO of BlackRock starts to say that, and I'll give you another example, uh, Mark Weinberger, who's the sort of exiting uh, uh, chief exec of Ernst & Young, one of the big audit firms, says something like, uh, within a few years, purpose auditing is going to be as important as financial auditing. Now, that's quite a statement from a company that just does financial auditing. I mean, they do other things beside, but they're got a big bet in financial auditing and of course that's worrying to them because they have no idea how to do purpose auditing but when hard-bitten um capitalists uh like the ceo of uh, ernst and young like the ceo of blackrock like the financial times when these people are saying it's a busted flush capitalism is broken there's clearly something going on right uh, and in- interestingly it's broken for the same reason politics is broken i Uh, the world has become more complicated than our models for capitalism and our models for for politics can cope with. So we need a new model. So the first thing is like recognising the difficulty, right? So if you stick your head in the sand and say, oh, no, politics is fine, you ain't going to make any progress because you're not even admitting the truth. So again, back to Luther King, truly brutal facing the truth of what's happening right here, right now. So we've got to face the truth of it. Capitalist is bust. Capitalism is a busted flush. We need a new model. Politics is a democracy is a busted flush. We need a new model. So what is that new model? So you can't get to that new model if you don't admit the fact you know, we're past yeah. our sell-by date. Uh, we'll, we'll cover the politics one yeah. slightly further down. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, because if capitalism is broken, yeah. right... What's next? What's next? Because it's not Marxism. No. Hopefully no, Marxism, Marxism. Is a, would be a regression. Right. right. And, and the social model from China, or, yeah. or the pseudo-capitalist stroke socialist model, yeah. appears to be one model that seems to be working. It's, it's the long-term versus the short-term, and that's the, the, what I would feel is the disease of the West, which is short-termism, the, yeah, short, the quarter... Super quarter, short-termism. So is China the model that we no, should be looking um, to? No, not particularly, uh, because China, pr- probably one of the only countries on the planet that could have lifted 300 million people out of poverty in one generation. There's probably no Western country that could have done that. So there are some great things about what's happening in China, but of course everybody knows the human rights dimension. There are also some stuff that isn't frankly great. Um, So if you look to Scandinavia, there's something emerging in Scandinavia where they're operating a different kind of model. So, um, I mean, I think if you look at the, uh, you know, the gross national happiness you know, uh, people talk about Bhutan uh, and uh, Denmark. You know, Scandi countries do very well on all those statistics. Where are the happiest people on earth? A lot of them are in Scandinavia. Uh, where is uh, infant mortality, the lowest on earth? Scandinavia. Uh, where is educational attainment, some of the highest on Scandinavia? So there's something going on in Scandinavia where they're starting to emerge a new model. So there's little pockets. And they pay the highest taxes. as well. They pay the highest taxes, right? Whereas in the West, um, because we're privileging low taxation, uh, because we're so individualistically focused, and America's the extreme of this, is I keep all the 
the money. So America has more billionaires than most of the European countries put together. And that's sort of held up as a good thing. Well, Scandinavia would say that's not a good thing because, uh, you know, who does that benefit? It benefits a tiny percentage of people and it doesn't benefit the entire population. So, uh, again, when we're greedy and we try to stockpile for ourselves... Uh, that's not, uh, you know, moving in the right direction. But that's more of a socialist model, then. Um, it's, it's, it's not... I, I'm, I'm not a socialist per se. I'm not saying it's a socialist model. Uh, it's more uh, um, sort of starting to lean into the things about equality uh, um, and actually lifting everybody's experience, not just the top 1%. So in Scandinavia, you know, everybody gets better educated, everybody gets better healthcare, everybody does well not just the 1%. Uh, and so models, um, uh, I mean, the political dimensions, you know, might be a bit socialist, but I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about this view that actually we all benefit from all of us benefiting. Because if we just privilege a, a few individuals and a few individuals do fantastically well, a lot of people don't do well. So uh, I was out with one of our uh, American clients recently um, and they realised that they set up wrong for their customer base. I mean, this is a massive FMCG client, um, fast-moving consumer goods. Um, so they've sort of come across this data which is saying that about you know half of America are just two paychecks away from financial crisis. Yeah, they, they, they say that most people in this country savings-wise have less than six weeks. Correct. That's not good. And that's not even good for the billionaires because if most people go under financially, they haven't got the money to buy the products that are making the billionaires billionaires, right? So that's not good. So if I just keep stockpiling, I like me as one individual billionaire, I might be very well off, but ultimately it's going to fail even for me. That's not good. So actually a more enlightened perspective would be to actually you've got to you know, distribute that wealth beyond just the 1% because there aren't people who are well enough. And of course, one of the things that we can learn from China is it's lifted the middle class. So, you know, they've done very well. And now there's all these people who can buy goods and services and so on. So the economy is going from strength to strength. That's about lifting more people, not just lifting a handful of people. So in the West, we've got to take a, a sort of more inclusive. And in fact, this agenda about social inequality has been the top topic in Davos, where all the billionaires meet every year. It's been the top topic in Davos for the last three years, social inequality and what do we do about it. So it's starting to Pinge on conscious, we've got to do something better than just fuel the billionaires. Well, we're going to have to be broken up by the news, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of work, food, and politics. See you in a minute. You're listening to Sam Talks Technology, the UK's number one technology show. At least that's what Sam told me to say. Indeed, I did. Hello, and welcome back, everybody. I'm going to say I'm really pleased, and I mean it, to have Dr. Adam Watkins here today. Um, we've been having a fascinating conversation, so if you missed the first half, I recommend you get the podcast later from iTunes or from all good podcasting places. Welcome back, Alan, to the last half hour. We talked about leadership in the first half of the show, um, and we talked about... Well, we started to touch on what was the new economic models, really. Um, I want to move forward now. You've got a brilliant book called Crowdocracy, um, and I want to find out what you mean by crowdocracy um, 
Because I think it touches on both the economic, but more of the political 2.0 model. I, I don't think you call it that. That's what I call it. Um, which then also leads into another one of your books, I believe, you know, about the future of food. Mm-hmm. Because I think they're all interlinked. I think yes. we are at this horrible inflection point of society or humanity yeah. where uh, for somebody like me, I'm desperately looking for something, leadership, I guess, is Mm. what I'm looking for, Mm. because I'm not getting it from Trump or Boris, Mm. uh, or from Putin, or from anyone else. And Mm. and There seems to be a vacuum right now in the world, and and populism, therefore, takes hold in a vacuum. Mm. So, what is crowdocracy, and and, and what can we, as individuals or society, if that's a thing, Mm. do to evolve forward because Mm. right now I think we're just going off a cliff. Mm. Um, So I agree. So um, basically democracy has been a fantastically positive force in the world for the last couple hundred years. Um, So it's capitalism, but... Exactly. But they're both past their sell-by date. Yeah. And, and it's not just me saying that. There is concrete evidence. So the high tide mark for democracy was in the year 2000. Uh, there were 120 democracies in the world. There are now only 105. Um, so countries are starting to look beyond democracy, partly because many com- countries, you only have to look around the world, uh, it's sort of failing. The world is more complicated and it can't be handled by democracy. So there's a sort of nasty sort of regression going on with the rise of the extreme right uh, and many, many nation states, uh, so Poland, Turkey, um, uh, Hungary, Austria, the UK, um, France, uh, Brazil, um, uh, the Ukraine have just appointed a comedian uh, as the president, uh, the US. um, So did America, but we don't talk about uh, that. Yes. So there's a sort of polarisation. So many of these countries are literally split in half. Uh, and warring factions sort of lobbing sort of theoretical grenades at each other. So we've got a, got a nasty regression going on, uh, and there's, uh, we can talk about why that is. But I think many observers have noticed that there's something profoundly wrong. Um, and it can't be fixed by bolstering up a, a busted flush of democracy. So there's been a whole rash of books, uh, things like liquid democracy or you know, and ideas of citizen assemblies or participative democracy. Uh, but they're all predicated on trying to inform our representatives better. If we could just get the MPs better informed, it would create a better system. And, and our view is that's just not true. That's sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The system is broken. We need a new system. Um, so if you pull back and look historically, you know, how did we get here and what's coming next? So that's what we've done in Crowdocracy and say, look, Um, democracy is really a sort of adolescent version of how to make decisions. So let me just give a very quick run through. So all societies start with anarchy, every man, woman and dog for themselves. So it's kind of, you know, a fight for individual survival. And then beyond that, you go to mob rule. So, you know, the gang with the biggest set of clubs is in charge. And then eventually you get a power autocrat who takes control of the mob. So how we got kings and queens, yeah. Well, we haven't quite got to kings and queens. We've just got to a king. Okay. So the leader of the mob, uh, the guy with the biggest cudgel or biggest muscles in in historical terms. Um, So you'll see that in business, autocracy, right? So you basically get the CEO who's running it autocratically. So they're in charge. They basically make all the decisions. You might have a debate at the leadership team. So if there's 10 people in the room, there's a debate. But eventually the CEO overrules people or says, right, I've heard of what you're saying, we're going left. Yeah, and we, we, we know that Steve Jobs was that. Correct. And we know Zuckerberg's that. Correct. So um, we can say, well, actually, that's 
brilliant for speed uh, and they're the best kind of leaders in a startup uh, or to open up new markets uh, to make things happen so on the upside of that they make stuff happen they get the business going but soon enough they're a risk occurs because all the decisions are based on that one person making the right call and as the world becomes more complicated sometimes they start to make the wrong calls so then you get the next level up is a sort of uh, two heads are better than one so rather than in a board of 10 one v9 dynamics you get two v8 so that's the king and the queen that's mum and dad that's the ceo and the cfo and the rest of the board or the ceo and the coo and the rest of the board so two heads are better than one so this sort of double-headed uh, uh, leadership model. Uh, so that would be an Archie Norman and Alan Layton back in the day in Asda, right? Two guys or women, it doesn't have to be guys. Uh, so two people running the company. Um, so the court of king and queen or what happens in these dynamics is you create parent-child dynamics. So what happens is the eight people are constantly trying to put a wedge between mum and dad or the king and the queen and court and factions uh, and cliques start to develop. And so uh, you set the foundation for political manoeuvring. Um, but it is better than autocracy because you've got two decision makers, not one. So you've got a 2v8 dynamic. And then democracy emerged. And democracy was a massive leap forward because it was a 6v4 model. So it's three times more effective than king and queen or mum and dad because uh, you've got three times the number of brains trying to figure out what the answer is. So it was a huge leap forward, and that became the dominant driving force in business and society, in many societies. Um, and that's where we currently are in most businesses, a sort of democratic process or a meritocratic process. So at the board level, we have a bit of a debate. We can't quite figure out what the answer is. Right, quick show of hands, motion carried. Six v four. But here's the fault line in democracy, is actually the power doesn't sit with a six, it sits with the two swing votes. So the four people who were outvoted spend their entire time trying to win two votes so they become the majority. So the power sits with the swing voters. So um, we saw that certainly in the, in the recent UK. At the moment, uh, you know, the DUP hold power uh, over yeah. everything, right? Yeah. So they're dictating which ways, because they're the swing votes in the British government right now. In the presidential election, it boils down to not 50 states electing the president, but 70,000 people in Florida and Iowa, essentially. The rest of them don't really matter. So it's the swing votes that matters. That's not really democratic. That's not the power of the majority. That's the power of the swing vote. So even democracy is no longer democratic. And if you look at the British Parliament, as we point out in the book Crowdocracy, of the 650 MPs, there are only three MPs that actually were put in to Parliament with a majority in their own constituency. So most MPs were put in by the largest minority. So roughly, if you get about 26, 27% of the vote in your constituency, you become an MP. Yeah, that's the first-past-the-post model. Correct, first-past-the-post model. Now, I'm not advocating proportional representation at Aren't all. You? I'd love that. No, no, no I'm okay. not advocating that. Um, I'm advocating a different, a completely different model, right? Okay. Um, but if you get 26% of the vote, you're in. Uh, so most people in your constituency didn't actually vote for you. So more people voted for somebody not you than voted for you. That's not democratic. You're not carrying the majority. In fact, of the 650 MPs, only three carry a majority in their own constituency. So democracy has ceased to be democratic. Um, and so we just start to describe all these uh, problems with democracy 
how is it not democratic? And even if you're in Parliament, the process isn't democratic in terms of how do you change anything? Because you've got to toe the party line. Yeah, the you're whipped, yeah. right? So you can't stand out because then it ruins your career. So we talk about all those problems and we say, well, what comes beyond democracy? So what tends to happen, the reason why we're stuck at democracy is countries that flirt with social democracy get stuck in what's called consensual hell. Is we're busy trying to get everybody on, on side. So if you look at a in a boardroom, you're trying to win all 10 people over to a certain point of view and you get stuck in consensual it becomes a swamp and it takes ages and ages and ages to convince people but isn't that people trying to get their we better correct uh, so it requires skill but it often gets stuck because people haven't got those we skills they just keep fighting their own corner and try and force a capitulation so we don't really align behind an answer so social uh, voting models usually fail and therefore it collapses back down into democracy. So there's two things that have emerged beyond social democracy there's something called holacracy and then crowdocracy. So holacracy uh, which is how do you get to 10-0 and then crowdocracy which I'll explain a bit more is how do you get to 10,000 v0 i.e. how do you get mass scale alignment um, and so there's a couple of critical things here which is um, how do you unlock the wisdom of the crowd now anybody that knows anything about crowd dynamics 95% of the time the crowd dumbs down and you get the mob and somebody or something gets lynched yeah because apathy is the the prevailing focus we know so few people vote and it's at that small percentage so how do you get how do you get everyone well uh, so first of all again recognize you know face the brutal facts democracy has passed its sell by date we need something else let's face that and they say well okay what is that else it's not social democracy that's all already failed so we've got to get in holacracy and crowdocracy right so if you look at the way that you set up uh, and unlock the wisdom of the crowd so 95 percent of the time crowd dumbs down becomes a mob something goes wrong um five percent of the time interestingly wisdom emerges Right, the crowd becomes super smart, and something really brilliant comes out of the crowd. But it happens so rarely; it's not common. So, we in crowdocracy, we wrote: What are the four conditions that you need for crowd wisdom? And this goes back to Galton, you know, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, uh, where he looked at what were those conditions where the wisdom of the crowd emerged. Now, the, the four conditions are diversity. Right, first of all, a diverse crowd is wiser than a monoculture. Which is why we want it on boards. Which is why we want it on boards. And it's not about gender or race or LGBTQI. It's not about any of that, right? It's diversity of perspectives. Right. Diversity. But that generally comes it through can do. that. So, so gender and race is a very blunt proxy. But you can have... I mean, Jonathan Pye does a, a brilliant satir- satirical parody uh, of Boris Johnson's diverse cabinet. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's brilliant. If anybody hasn't seen that, it's very funny. Um, so I think just, it's the one about Pretty Patel just cracks yes, me up. Yes, Pretty Patel. So it, it's not about your genitalia, as he would say. Yeah. It's actually, do you really bring a different point of view? Because you could be a male and a female, basically almost twins just advocating and spouting the same view so just because one's male and one's female doesn't mean you've got diversity yeah he goes back pretty patel she hasn't got a genitalia the same as a male she has she's a different color and she still believes in the death penalty yes so ignore the other two parts it's the death penalty don't you get yes. it <laughs> yes exactly so uh, it's diversity that unlocks wisdom but you need legitimate diversity not just skin color that's a very blunt proxy as is gender a blunt proxy so diversity and 
business is important, not because of quotas of skin or sexual orientation or anything else, because diversity makes you commercially more powerful because you unlock wisdom and wisdom makes you more effective in the market. Okay, so diversity, condition one, right? Condition two is independence of thought, Right. So most business people have experienced they're in a room with some really brilliant people uh, and they spend a three hour brainstorm trying to come up with something. And mysteriously, the output is learn to say no. I mean, it's just awful. And then people go, how did that happen? We've got some brilliant people and we come up with really inane answers. So, uh, and it's because there's something goes wrong with group dynamics and people lose their independence of thought. Um, and so actually, if you maintain independence of thought, if you set up the system so people are not unduly influenced by, you know, charisma or a status or seniority and they can maintain and contribute their different point of view, you'll get better answers. And ironically, tech platforms are a good way to do that. So if you're in the room with Obama or, or I don't know, one of the Kardashians, you think, well, I was going to say different to that person, but mm, they're an important person. I'll keep my opinion to myself. That kills independence of thought. So you need a mechanism for getting the independence of thought out. So diversity and independence of thought. And then you need to delegate authority uh, out from the centre to where the decision bites. So i.e. the people making the decision need to be the people who are affected by that decision. So one of the reasons um, people got frustrated with Brussels, it was the faceless bureaucrats in Brussels making decisions over our life. We didn't even know who these people were. Uh, It's a centralised model, and people rejected that overwhelmingly. Um, And so you've actually got to put the power... Uh, you know, it's like the sort of northern powerhouse idea where you've got to devolve the power to the people who are making the decisions. Yeah, we've got to devolve parliaments. Correct. Exactly. So that unlocks wisdom because people have got some skin in the game, right? If you've got some central bureaucrats with no skin in the game, they make better, worse decisions. So, and then the fourth condition uh, is integration of diverse perspectives. So James Surowiecki, who wrote the original book, uh, Wisdom of Crowds, talked about aggregation. And that's a mistake. It's not aggregation. Aggregation is a sort of poor quality averaging and dumbing down. It's not aggregation of opinion, it's integration. So how do you honour each of those different perspectives and have them all in the mix? So that requires integration. So the four conditions for wisdom, diversity, independence of thought, uh, devolution of decision-making and integration. If you set the system up to do that, and the operating principle is wisdom, not volume, then you get much better decisions. So that's the hope. And we, we make that case in the Crowdocracy book. And we even talk about how do we transition from our current system to a crowdocratic system. And we've been teaching organisations for the last five years of how to do this. And we're starting to see some really much better quality decision. It creates a much greater level of engagement, much greater empowerment in the workforce, because people can start to see how their idea contributes to the final outcome. So they're engaged with it. They've got some skin in the game. So people are more engaged. They start to realise they can make a difference. Part of the big political disillusionment is people feel that their voice doesn't count anymore. So they're prepared to vote anybody in to just try and break the problem. Which is why we got Brexit. Which is why we got Brexit and Trump, right? Uh, Because we're so disenfranchised with the system and it not working. And millions of people realise the system isn't working. But then they go, well, what can you do? So crowdocracy is an example of what can you do. So here we, is a way. We do have examples of crowdocracy working. So pre-Milton, uh, or Friedman, sorry, um, you know, 
Cadbury's, John Lewis Partnership, Bourneville were all examples where, you know, we talk about John Lewis Partners, right? Yeah. And they, so fundamentally, the crowd, in this case, the, the staff, are all engaged in the business and they have a partnership and ownership. They feel they're, they're part of it. I do feel that as a country, um, we don't have a vision, we don't have a leadership, and I don't feel that we have a, a common sense of goal. We are citizens, which is the same as the John Lewis Partnership, but nobody teaches citizenship unless you're a foreigner and you come in as an immigrant. Then you have to learn citizenship. Yeah. But English people have never learned citizenship. And I, I, I feel Europe, not failed, but the model was sold wrongly in Britain. So the Germans and the French understood that the United States of Europe was the eventual goal. We were never told that. Mm. And we were never... So when papers write about the negativity of Europe, it's because we were sold a different model. And, and the mainland Europe has been sold the complete model, I guess. Right. And one of the reasons people rejected that is because of this devolution idea. We didn't want centralised, faceless bureaucrats to have power over us. And that is correct, by the way. That, that idea is correct because it reduces wisdom. So you've got to keep the power localised. That's the devolution. That's the, the northern but powerhouse. Most, most, I mean, this is where I think a lot of people say that taking back control was the, the underlying Brexit theme. But actually, most of the laws, most of the structures, most of the governance is still in the local government of the country. It's not centralised in that sense. Yeah, so there was a lot of mythology around the whole Brexit debate, right? That was just one of them. Taking back control. Who from? Yeah. Like, who do you think... We have the control. We already had the control, We just right? didn't imply it. Right, so that was a misunderstanding and a lot of this sort of obfuscation that went on around the whole time of Brexit and people were confused and we're, so we, we got an outcome that's undoubtedly going to take us backwards in my personal view. Yeah. Um, so rather than stay in and make the club work properly, I evolve because there was no doubt that the EU was a broken model. It yeah. wasn't working. It was faces central bureaucrats making decisions. Just a good example. They right. never audited their accounts. Right. So if you look, and partly what's underlying all of that is we haven't learnt to relate. It's a we space problem. We haven't learnt to relate to our neighbours in Europe mm -hmm. uh, effectively enough. So we've just broken the entire model. Rather than make the model work, we've backed out entirely. Uh, and we're going to suffer the consequences of that. Um, and so, actually, that's because we're not great at relating. So, interestingly, um, I often talk to people about, if you look at the reason, there are the two most successful species on the planet are human beings and bacteria. Right? <laughs> okay. um, and actually, human beings are bacteria. So yeah. if you look at the number of cells in our body, we're only 10% human cells. We're actually 90% bacterial cells right. by volume. Right? If you look at genetics, we're 99% bacterial DNA and 1% human DNA. So basically, human beings are bacteria with a human shell. Um, but bacteria are phenomenally successful in the world because they collaborate. And human beings are phenomenally successful because, we, because collab we collaborate, right? So apes don't, you know, primates don't collaborate, but human beings do. So what's made us successful is our ability to get on with each other. It's a we space capability, right? So when we get smarter and smarter at getting on with each other, all boats are lifted and we get better. That's the future, not some ethnocentric regression. So... Um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Saturis, who's one of the great uh, evolutionary biologists in the world, speaks very eloquently about this. And she said, if you look at the evolution of living beings uh, on the planet, it took bacteria a billion years to realise it's more energy efficient to collaborate than to kill. 
And their first collaboration was sharing some cytoplasmic DNA and the nucleus was born. So single-celled bacteria, which was all there was for a billion years, were sort of going around killing each other and eventually they thought, well, we'll share a bit of DNA and we'll create a nucleus. So that was the first leap forward is nucleation of single-celled organisms. It took bacteria a billion years. Now, once they got nucleated, they started fighting each other again in a sort of regressive, regressive move. And they took them another second billion years to realise, oh, maybe it would be more energy efficient if we collaborated than if we killed. And so after a second billion years, multicellular organisms were born. So that took bacteria two billion years to get to multicellular. And as we started to multicellular, then the escalation starts to happen and eventually multicellular organisms and human beings evolved. So if you look at the evolution of success on the planet, it is at the core collaboration. We've just got to get better at it as human beings. And the reason we need to get better at it is the clock is ticking. We've got about 30 years uh, to reverse some of the problems we've created. uh, Because if we don't make the right decisions next 30 years, humanity will almost certainly have an extinction event within about two or 300 years. Yeah, and... I think the worry we have right now is that the populism, the the, the Brexit, the Trump, uh, is taking us away from even climate deniers um, and taking us back to models that are regressive. Yes. Um, so I, I fully agree that we need to change these models. I just don't see them changing. I just don't see progress towards it. In fact, I see regression. And that's what worries me right now is that... Well, there are, there are a lot of pockets of regression, but, you know, I've got, the, again, great good fortune in, in our business. We work with 100 multinationals around the world, different geographies, different markets, sectors, uh, and we do see pockets of hope. Uh, I mean, I was with the exec uh, board of Pets at Home uh, right. last week, uh, who are a brilliant model. Uh, they they kind of got a more mutual John Lewis-esque model uh, where each of the vets in their retail space is a partner in the business, a bit like Specsavers, a, a, another company we work with. Um, and so um, these new models and uh, Pets at Home were saying, do you know what, it occurs to us that Uh, being in business isn't just all about quarterly returns and profit. Maybe we should use some of this profit to do good in the communities. So they spontaneously, and I got super excited, Peter Pritchard, who's a brilliant CEO of that business, they spontaneously realised this was actually the way to go forward. So there are little pockets of hope, you know, what we call the emergence of new thinking, a a realisation that capitalism is bust, we need a new model. You know, uh, companies who are becoming much more interested in their social purpose or their corporate purpose and not from purpose washing will just pretend yeah. we're doing good value. A veneer of. Yeah, a veneer of marketing, essentially. Uh, no, they genuinely are buying into that. And Pets at Home are a lovely example of that. So we're starting to see at this time of emergency and the polarisation, particularly politically, and the regression, that's an, um, creating an emergency. At the same time there's an emergency, there's also an emergence. So we're living in this world of paradox where emergency and emergence are happening simultaneously. It's a bit like we're more socially connected than we've ever been and we're more isolated. than. These two things are happening simultaneously. So humanity currently hangs in the balance, in my view, and the decision that uh, leaders make in the next 30 years will decide the outcome. 
Yeah, and I, I, I love the fact there is an emergence of a new social model. I do see, I agree, that, that there are elements. I mean, we use John Lewis as an example, but you, you, you rightly said pets are at home. And, and there are models like that where social good is there. There's also models I see um, in New Zealand, Prudence, um, yep. four-day weeks, Yep. You know, those types of things where, and then there's people who are beginning to say, right, you know, shareholder value. I mean, a bad example I'm going to give you, and we haven't got much time left, but is Amazon actually doesn't care about shareholder value and dividends. They reprofitize everything, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons, maybe. Yeah. Um, but if, if companies are to be more socially aware, um, um, the other model that I'm seeing emerge is bottom up. So mm-hmm. Google's a great example where recently they said, we don't want you to use the facial recognition software that we've developed for the police state. Mm. So uh, one worry I've got is now, I think boards have become very ineffective. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think NEDs have become very ineffective. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is they, they have misaligned goals because mm-hmm. they often have to have buy-in mm-hmm. so they're, they're aligned to the board. Um, shareholders do not have the same governance over the company. Mm-hmm. So it looks like to me from a distance that staff are beginning to say, actually, hold on a minute, we're going to be the governance over the company. Mm-hmm. Is that a model you're seeing as well or is that...? Um, it's beginning to happen. I mean, it goes back to what we discussed earlier, which is the primary problem is more people need to wake up. Right. Right. And then once they're woken up, they need to grow up, I become more mature, more sophisticated, have a wider understanding of what's really going on. Um, so they then become active in trying to shift the way that companies are run. So, for example, um, if you look at, we, we've seen some uh, very turbulent min, uh, weather in the last, uh, you know, sort of 12 months as a result of climate change. Um, and who is that going to hit first in the corporate sector? Insurance companies. So what one would like to see on the board of insurance companies is not how do we avoid paying floodplain premiums uh, or insuring people in floodplains. How do we move the dial on climate change? Now, if insurance companies don't start to proactively do something about climate change, who is going to? Yeah. Insurance companies need to get into that and actually start to take some responsibility for leading us all into a better future on climate change. Insurance companies need to show some leadership on that. Um, But we are seeing pockets of this type of thinking emerge. That gives me, I'm an optimist at heart, that gives me great hope that we've still got a chance of saving ourselves. Yeah, we nudge and behavioural marketing. We could go on for ages talking. Alan, I'm afraid to say we've run out of time here. <laughs> and, uh, now, look, uh, if you want to find out more about uh, Complete Coherence or find your books, I mean, I recommend going to Amazon. I recommend going to uh, YouTube to watch all of those TED videos. They're brilliant. But what else can they do if they want to get in touch? Or, you know, if you're a corporate leader, how do they get in touch with just, you? Just simply email us. We're very open uh, and responsive on email. So just ping us an email, um, Alan Watkins, so no, Alan at complete-coherence.com. So just ping me an email, uh, be happy to chat. And, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people uh, in the business who are specifically there to try and help lift all of us. Alan Watkins, or Dr. Alan Watkins, I should say. Thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Real pleasure, Sam. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.